Thanks for choosing this full-service podcast of New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. As we continue our sermon series and the transition, today we will talk about the once-for-always sacrifice, the propitiation that Jesus Christ is. God bless you as you sing. God bless you as you listen. God bless you as you learn. God bless you as you grow.
at the loading dock. Um, <laughs> and see you later. Remind me there's a meeting next Sunday immediately following church service on the 13th. And so that is all I have. And Michael left the building, so he can't right now. <laughs> <laughs> Our Lord Father, you have blessed us richly. You have given us so much. Saved us, give us the promise of heaven, and um, so help us to always remember to serve you, to um, to always remember to be thankful that you have not freed us to sin, but freed us from sin, so that we no longer need to be slaves to it. And um, pray for our country and our state and people around the world.
morning, good morning. This is our opportunity to talk about how the Lord has been working this last seven days. I hope you've been reading your Bible, praying, listening to what God has to say, watching what's going on around you as you move around, as you work for the Lord. I hope you've been working for the Lord, as you've been serving, as you've been on your jobs, or uh, in your classrooms, or in your virtual classrooms. Whatever. How has God been working? What would you like to share this week? Let me share one, and maybe you'll have a second to think. Okay. So uh, we, were, we were at the life station yesterday, and Isaiah Carter was there. He's a uh, young man kind of on fire for the Lord, and he drives his deliveries to the life station. And we were talking, we got talking about God and, and uh, about repentance and so on. He was sharing a story with me about how um, he began a conversation with a 30-something, a uh, gentleman who said, I've always considered myself to be kind of an oddball, a peculiar person, a little bit different from the normal way, and like that. And he said, but uh, he had walked away from God. He was a Christian, follower of the Lord, and he had kind of walked away from somebody's version of God anyway, like he wasn't always going to church, he wasn't always serving in the body, and things like that. And he got talking to Isaiah, and of course Isaiah is on fire for God, and he's excited to be serving seven days a week, that kind of thing. And so the, they got talking about how that happens with some people who are following God and they just sort of sort of drift away from serving maybe the way they should or could anyway. And Isaiah said, well, do you think there are other people that would benefit from having that conversations like what we're having? Talking about God, talking about the Bible, talking about the Word. And, um, and he said, yeah, you know, I can think of a couple of other people who are kind of like me. They're just... They're just kind of hanging out there waiting for something to happen, and they would enjoy having these conversations too. And so now he's got a group of five or six, uh, consistently five or six, sometimes more, that gets together and talks about these kinds of things. And about better than half of them are professionally Christians. And so and I thought, I was thinking about it, that you know, sometimes we get wrapped up in our idea of what we're supposed to do for God, and then we see people who aren't, and we forget to kind of meet them where they are. And this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. Sometimes you might just have to ask that question. Do you, do you value talking about spiritual things? Do you have spiritual beliefs? Are you a spiritual person? Whatever, to get started, that sounds like the first question in uh, Share Jesus Without Fear that we sometimes use when we're with, talking about witnesses and things like that. And I, I, then I ask myself, okay, why? Why do we not get there? Why do we not? are we not willing to talk to them? And there's a few reasons that came to mind. There was God one. I thought about well, because we assume automatically they don't want to hear it. And the truth is, no man cometh unto the Father except he be called. And so, some people don't want to hear it, but some people are aching to hear it. And you don't know which one it is until you ask a question like that. And, and uh, in that case, they wound up in a long, drawn-out conversation that resulted in a conversation with five or six other people. And now they've had a conversation every week for a couple of months with that same group of people. And, he's, and he calls it a small group, but he doesn't call it a small group Bible study, but they talk about the Bible. He calls it a small group because this is a small group of people that want to get there and talk about God. So who do you know then? Think about it in your life. Who do you know that might, can't say they wouldn't for sure, but they might be interested in talking about those things? Sometimes we invite them to church, and they're, oh, I don't like them. But would they possibly be interested in talking about those things? Do they have questions? Does God have answers? Not that you have answers, not that I have answers, but does God have answers? Because I was encouraged by that. We might want to readdress 
some of the people I, was, I remember one time I sat down and I and I had a vague apology as a close friend of mine, and I said, I want to you know I want to tell you that we've been friends for over ten years and I've never talked to you about Jesus. And she said, she said, well the truth is I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I pray all the time. I believe in God. And she said, I just I don't go to church because I kind of fell away from her, fell out of it. She had a serious illness and she was recovering from it still. And she kind of fell out of it and said, you know, so I just never went back. And she never did go back. But she followed, followed God. She lived for God and tried. And she was very giving. And she was very much a servant. And so in 10 years, I never even mentioned it to her in all that time. She knew I was a Christian. She knew I was going to church and all that. And she helped our family a lot. But she never, to me, she had never said she was a Christian. And when I asked her, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, and so who is it that, that's in our lives that we can just begin that conversation with? And we might find some things that we uh, didn't realize are true. Anything else you'd like to talk about during the inspirational moment? Maybe somebody would be inspired by some experience that you're having, or God has spoken to you in some way. If not, we're going to go ahead and pray and move on. RJ? So, at work, I listen to music all day. It's, yeah. It helps strong also the quietness. Because, yes, I work in a mechanic shop, but sometimes you get very quiet. Sure. I don't like I don't like quiet, so I have to have some kind of background noise. And I was listening to my I was listening to music, and a song came on from someone that I've only heard one song ever from. And I was listening to this song while I was eating my lunch, actually. And the only other song I've ever heard of by this person was called Dear God. Um, but the song that I heard. It got me wondering and got me thinking a lot because of some of the stuff it says in the, most of the beginning. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I can, I'm going to read a little bit of it and what stuck out with me the most. Um, it says, I can't sleep. I keep thinking about this. What if everything that's going on in the world really is coming to an end? Then what? What if it's... What if it isn't a lie? What if we get to heaven and don't make it inside. What if we get to the gates and see God on the other side? He looks us in our face and says our whole lives we wasted time. What if we can't go back? What if we can't redo the life and get a second chance? What if our future happiness is memories of our past? While we burn and while we burn forever and are haunted by the devil's laughs. Why do we push away why do we push them away? And why do the ones we work to keep never actually stay? Why do we focus on tomorrow and forget about today? And smile in everyone's face and try to act like we're okay? Why do we live this way? Why do we hate? Why do we fight? Why do we act like there's time and got more on more than one life? So there's a lot of why, and I think in general there's a lot of why in life, like why are we here, why do we do the things we do, and there's a lot of times where you ask a why question and you can't get an answer. And something that stuck out, like I said in this first little part of it, is um, where it says, what if we get to heaven and don't get inside? And then you ask yourself, well, why can't I get inside? 
what it, what can I do to make make it to where I can get inside? People try to come up with all these excuses and all these reasons on why they need to get to heaven, and when the truth is, the only way we're going to get there is by following Jesus. And there's the other part in this is, what if our future happiness is memories of our past while we burn forever haunted by the devil's laughs? You don't. You can't make your future about what, what if, and why. You need to make your future about this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. You can't live a you can't live a life of what if and why. Because if you do, you're never going to get anywhere. Because you're always going to be asking yourself, well, what if I did it this way? What if it went that way? What? Why? Why did this happen? And what can I do to fix it? You can't live your life by what ifs and why. Because if you do, you're never going to get anywhere. You're always going to be asking yourself. And as Christians, we have to stop asking what if and just know that we are followers of Christ. We are His people. We are getting into heaven. But we need to make sure that our lives reflect that. So that when we do get to heaven, God doesn't turn His back on us. So He can actually tell us, Welcome, my good and faithful servant, instead of get away for I never knew you. When you were just like, and I had forgotten all about this, I remember one time when I was about, to, I was probably early teens, like 13, 14 years old, my dad and mom took me out to Old Raceway Park, which is now gone, uh, and they used to do um, carriage races out there, just like, they were jockey races, but they, their horse would be connected to like a little cart, and ride a ride a cart, and ride a horse, and, and my parents would go out there, and after 9 o'clock, you were allowed to get in for free, and you could bet on the races and stuff like that, and... Um, and I was walking through, and I heard somebody say, oh, I should have done this. And then a few seconds later, I was talking to my dad, and I said, you know, I knew that horse was going to win. I should have done this. And he said, he said, let me tell you something, son. He said, I've been to Raceway Park a number of times. He said, this building is full of woulda, shoulda, coulda. That's what this building is all about. People get hooked on gambling, get hooked on betting, and like that. And they say, I would have been rich. If only I could have seen that horse was going to win. I should have bet. I knew that was going to be so I should have bet. I could have bet. I would have bet if only. And he said, if you can't live your life that way, this is before I became a Christian. He was a Christian, but he was away from the Lord, away from the church, and then later uh, gave his life over to the Lord. But um, I, I was thinking the same thing you were thinking. I remember my dad saying that when I was younger. And I, and I promised myself at that moment in time, even before, and this way before, like I said, I promised myself that I would not live a life of woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know what you're supposed to do, just do it. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And um, and then, you know, if it kills you, the next thing you know you'll be with God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll be with God and you'll get inside. It's a good word. Um, too many regrets. You could regret so much. You don't have to do it. Put it all behind you. Move and live for the Lord. It's a good word. All right. I'm going to ask Brother Chris Gribble, would you pray for us at this time as we transition? Uh, God, thank you for this name. Thank you for bringing us here together to uh, your work. Uh, God bless the tithes and offerings of the church. Help those around you. <laughs> 
All right, we continue with our sermon series on um, pre-transition, transition, post-transition, continuing to transition <laughs> from the uh, shallow to the deeper teachings of Jesus Christ. We began with the foundations, uh, the fundamental teachings that we have not left behind. We have been using them to check ourselves because we talked that first, well, that really that second week, we talked the first week about how we could... Uh, be in a position where we could not possibly make the transition to deeper teachings of Christ, which would be dull of hearing or if you've gone aside from the way. And then the second week we talked about the foundational teachings and that we would check the deeper teachings by the foundational teachings. So you remember those foundational teachings, I hope they are repentance of dead works, faith, uh, baptism of washing, laying on of hands, uh, and then eternal life or resurrection from the dead, and then eternal uh, judgment, and so they are. Those are the six foundational teachings that we are not leaving behind. So even as we study this, and it's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage again today. We got through it pretty well last week, um, but even as we study this passage of scripture today, I'm asking you to be checking yourself, checking me, uh, listening to God through that filter, remembering our foundation and how we got to where we are. I want to, I want to share with you a brief illustration, and then we'll dive into the text had the great blessing of being able to go to the Northwood football game on Friday night. Um, not everybody can do that these days. Uh, you have to have a student who's in the football uh, team or a student who's in the marching band or a student who's a cheerleader give you a ticket. That's the only way you can get in. And then you still have to pay to get in on top of that. So you have a ticket, but the ticket is not enough. You have a ticket which is permission. You have a ticket which allows you to sit uh, in the stands and then they have taped off in the stands blue lines and bleachers where you're not allowed to sit and then where there's no blue tape you're supposed to sit there and some people are are doing a pretty good job of following the lines and some people don't really even know what the lines represent or what they're there for and they haven't made any announcements about it that kind of thing but the point is we're given a ticket to get into the game to be allowed the permission to get into the game if you will but then not actually allowed to go in unless you still pay the price and i got to thinking about that and i thought the ticket is not adequate it is not enough. In past years, last year, we went to almost every home game uh, in support of our marching band students, uh, which was my son, and now uh, Arden is in there still, and so we support him. And in going to those football games, we would buy a ticket, and it was adequate. It was enough to get us into the game. And as I read this text, I realize that we're going to talk about now how Jesus is both adequate and enough. But to talk about how he is adequate and enough is not enough. There is something more there that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that uh, we must not miss. Okay? And so grab your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Amen. All right. This is God's Word. From this moment on, we mark the time in our service in which we just listen to God. Yes, you're going to hear my voice for the next however long. But really, I'm asking you to listen to the Lord and from His Word and then however He might use me and especially however He might use your experiences. I've always believed that the sermon is really uh, written by the body, from the body, through the body, in the lives of the body, not from the pastor. Um, but that being said, I do believe it's my calling to, to stand here and be used in this capacity. So we're reading from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And it will be one of only two texts that we read today. Uh, to get to where I think God is taking us. So here we go. Hebrews 9, verse 1. I'll break it down as I go. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. 
So we talk, this is the contrast between the old covenant that God made with his people. We talked about that last week. And the new covenant that God has now made with his people. And it says even the first covenant, now even the first covenant, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. So I'm going to stop here for a second. So if you didn't already have it, you're getting a picture of the earthly tabernacle, which is, was a representative, we understand, but it was a very specifically laid out representative. Moses was told exactly how to build it with details. And then it wasn't immediately right then, but over a period of time, the Ark of the Covenant collected these objects within it, which were... Uh, it says there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna. That's the stuff they collected that God sent down in the, kind of like with the dew as they were traveling in the wilderness. And Aaron's rod which budded. That's the rod that Aaron held and did a variety of things with while he was representing God to the Israelites and the tables of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments, we think, okay? And, and maybe some additional writings. And above it were the cherubim of glory. And cherubim is just a word for a type of angel of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And that was supposed to be that place in which God's uh, power touched the earth, or God's presence touched the earth. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, because that's not really what we're after. That's, it's not that we couldn't. He could, the author of... He or she could have, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews could have written in much more detail about those things, like what they represented, looked at what we were supposed to do because of them, and all those kinds of things. But that's not the point. Verse 6, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. So that outer area, the holy area, they were continually going in there. But into the second, that is the holy of holy places, but into the second, only the high priest enters. So that area inside there, wherein was the ark, wherein were those things that he mentioned, that, that the collected items, he says the high priest only goes in there once a year and not without taking blood, which he, bless you, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So in other words, when the high priest goes in, he doesn't go in without first cleansing himself, offering blood specifically, and also offering the blood in cleansing for the sins that the Israelites had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place had not, has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. So basically what he's saying, before I go any further, what he's saying is, the Holy Spirit of God now shows us that this was representative of something important for us to see. That while we might go into the outer area, only the high priest could go in and only covering himself in sacrifice and covering our sins in blood could he go into the inner area because the inner area was not currently available. Okay, not, He couldn't go in there regularly and minister before God, nor could anyone else go in there and minister before God. You follow? All right. 
The Holy Spirit is making that clear to us. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. In other words, he's saying, so we're going to make these sacrifices and they have a purpose to cleanse the person so that the person will not be destroyed as they come into the presence of God. But though that cleansing cannot affect the conscience because the law, the rules, they're all about, they're all about the idea of the outer man. Right? The rules are all about the steps that you've taken, the, the rules that you follow, the commands and the laws, and so on. And so, that doesn't really affect your conscience. Let me go aside for one second and say, when the writer of Hebrews here is mentioning the word conscience, it's, it's talking about an inner drive that people have to recognize good from bad, right from wrong. Okay? And if you've willingly chosen, having a conscience, if you've willingly chosen to do what's wrong, even though you knew it was wrong, then no amount of killing a goat or, or, or slicing a throat or choking, you know, uh, stomping out a chicken or something, no, no amount of that is going to change the fact that you willingly chose to do what was wrong. You follow? And that was the idea. However, the action could have a penance. The actual thing that had been done could have a penance and publicly admitting that you had sin and that you needed God to make a way for you to cleanse that sin was represented then by that blood. You follow? But remember, they had to make that cleansing of blood and then only the high priest could go in. So they already understood that the conscience of the man or woman could not be cleansed so that they could go into the presence of God. It was extremely dangerous to go into the presence of God because their conscience had not been cleansed, only their outer person. So only the high priest, which was dictated by God that he do so, having been cleansed with the blood, so he still needed a way that God would make, could go in and only once a year. So only the human high priest did not even have access to the Holy of Holies more than once a year. And the Holy Spirit is telling us the reason why all of these things existed was to show that there was a way needed for man to have access to God. He goes on, he says, or the author goes on, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation, meaning after we get a new body or after we get a new covenant or a future time, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, we talked about all this last week, of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Now, there was not given like rules how it could be constructed and people put it together. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, you remember we talked about last week how Christ is forever making intercession and how salvation is not received because we just believed per se, but because he is always making intercession for us. So we have trusted in him, and that is in that he is Lord and Savior and that God raised him from the dead, which we trust in because he can then be there standing before God making intercession for us. If you trust in someone or something else, no one and nothing else can do that. Jesus entered not through the tabernacle made with men, by men's hands, but through the tabernacle that God made, the heavenly tabernacle, and he did so not by the goats, 
blood or by any other means, but by His own blood. Right? He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, and that word obtained means earned, grasped, taken into His possession, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, made useless to God, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Remember, the, the foundation includes the repentance of dead works. And that, that teaching includes the, the bad things that we used to do, yeah, sinful, but also the things that we did to try to get close to God, which are dead works, works of righteousness that are actually works like filthy rags. They have no benefit or value to get us to God. And he said, now you can be cleansed from those things. You can come to a point at which you don't have to feel like you have certain things you have to do in order for God to accept you. Okay? That's required in growing in Christianity and making the transition and moving to deeper, te deeper teachings. We have to come to a point at which we no longer think we're going to do certain things to get God to love us. We have to recognize his character and what he has done and realize that we're beyond that now. Okay? Verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed... Under the first covenant, in other words, since someone has paid, someone has died to pay for the transgressions that were committed by the old rules, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So that because that death has happened, now those who are called can actually get the eternal inheritance because the price has already been paid. Verse 16. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And here he's talking about a covenant or a testament, uh, a will, if you will, a pattern of inheritance. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So if I write a will, last will and testament, for example, and a testament and a covenant, they're the same word. Okay, if I write a last will and covenant that says my son gets X percent of whatever I had, my wife gets all this, whatever, then that doesn't take effect until I die. You follow? So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was Jesus' testament. And it wasn't the, the, what was promised was not going to take effect. The inheritance was not going to take effect until someone died. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, symbolizing that this covenant would not take place until the proper blood is spilt, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. In other words, they understood there would not be forgiveness from God unless there would be a certain shedding of blood. And all the rest of that shedding of blood, that was all a picture of the coming shedding of blood. That's all it's trying to teach us. 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the, he in, in the heavens to be cleansed with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So if there is a tabernacle in heaven that must also be cleansed with blood, 
than the blood of calves and goats and chickens and whatever. That was, which I don't think chickens was even on the list. I keep saying that, but don't even count that one, right? Doves, let's say turtle doves, right? Was not even on the list? But the bottom line is, what was in heaven had to be cleansed with a better sacrifice than something like an animal from this earth. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Now we're getting to the meat of the matter. All of this is to show us this very important thing. Jesus didn't have to die over and over again or bleed over and over again to cleanse the tabernacle in heaven. He did that once for always, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, that means made clear, made obvious and known, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, because that sin had already been taken care of. To those who eagerly await him. Now chapter 10. We're over halfway through. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, in other words, the law was only giving us the idea of it, pointing to it, not actually giving us the thing, can never be the same sacrifices year by year, I'm sorry, can never buy the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, there was no way this was going to be sufficient because it was just a shadow of what was actually to come. Otherwise, would they not have caused, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have been, had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired. Listen to that. God did not want sacrifice and offering. But a body thou hast prepared for me, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. God wasn't even happy with all of that. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the rock, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. When he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will, he takes away the first, the way we used to do it, in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'll read that sentence again so you understand. By this will, we have, and I said one word wrong. By this will, we have been sanctified, there we go, set apart, holy, undefiled, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Almost done. 
For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. All right, so that's the text, and we've got a little bit more, uh, and it's important that we'll read before we're through, but there are three things I want you to see. They're simple things, but they're simple things deep on, if you will, in Christianity. They've gone beyond the fundamental, fundamental teachings that we've been looking at. So we talked about repentance of dead works. If there is now, therefore, no more offering of, for sin, then we understand there is no dead work nor work of righteousness, which would actually still be a dead work because it cannot yield true righteousness. That comes when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and believe that God raised him from the dead. So the righteousness has come through Jesus, but if you continue to do works to receive your righteousness, there is no offering for sin. You actually cannot get any closer. In fact, I will even say it this way. If you will try to do righteousness, if you will try to do what's right, it, with the purpose in mind of drawing closer to God, if that is your purpose of doing right, then that actually is a sin. We draw closer to God by the righteousness bestowed by Jesus because of the sacrifice and the price that he paid. First point, Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Jesus' sacrifice is enough. There have been a number of times in my life where I have truly hurt someone's feelings. It's happened in my marriage. It's happened with my kids. It's happened with people that I've worked with. I'm with people in the church. I have put a stumbling block in front of them or hurt them in a way that they had every reason to be very upset with me. In some cases, I didn't come back and apologize right away. And I can't think of any of that. If, if you're here today and I've done that to you, uh, I apologize. I didn't apologize. Uh, but I believe I've apologized in every case. In some cases, I didn't come back and apologize when I had hurt somebody so deeply right away. Obviously, my lack of apology was not enough. They needed to know that I desired their forgiveness. They needed to know that I had something to say about what I had done. People just go, oh, you know, after a while, we just sort of forget it. But something happened. There was an actual pain. And then when something happens again and it ties into that previous pain or it happens in a similar way or it looks the same, then that previous pain comes back up again. And now we've got that pain and this pain combined together to make a, a well-woven pain. And when it's three or four times like that, such a thick thread is woven out of those things that needed to be forgiven and there should have been an apology and there wasn't that a barrier begins to be created between you and that person. We understand that when you hurt somebody you love, you need to come back the best you can and make it right. Now, I believe in most of the cases I did come back and make it right. But guess what? My I'm sorry, my will you forgive me, was not enough. It's not enough. When you hurt somebody deeply, and you say, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that. Or I'm sorry I put that stumbling block in front of you. I'm sorry I did that. 
Will you forgive me? If they forgive you, they don't forgive you because you apologize. We teach that to our little children. We say, in fact, this came up this week, and someone said, we were trying to come get Ariana to guess the word forgiveness on Friday night. We were doing a Bible game, and, and I said, if somebody says, I'm sorry, then what are you supposed to do? And she said, hug. <laughs> that's the answer. She could, like, oh, okay, no, not hug. I mean, that's not what we're looking for. A hug might be a good thing to do, but that's not what we're supposed to do. So we've taught our kids that when someone says, I'm sorry, it's supposed to hug, use kind words, whatever. We have to, maybe even that you're supposed to forgive them. They've asked for forgiveness. You're supposed to forgive them. And so they, they do forgive them. But the truth is saying, I'm sorry, is not enough. John the Baptist was baptizing people and the tax collectors came and the soldiers came and like that and they are baptizing and then they would say, now that we have repented because the kingdom of God is coming as John was preaching, now that we have repented, what are we supposed to do? And he said, go and do works of repentance. So what's the difference between a work of repentance and a dead work that we're repenting from? Well, there obviously is a difference, right? So the works of repentance they make the I'm sorry, I want to be forgiven somehow enough. But we can't do works of repentance as dead works to draw near to God. And so it gets complicated. We're talking about the deeper teachings of the faith. It should be complicated. We have to fathom this. We have to understand how are we supposed to repent of dead works and have faith in Christ as the ultimate and necessary sacrifice and He is enough and we get baptized and begin to live for Him, we're in fellowship with other believers, we know we'll have eternal life one day and never be judged for our sin, we're supposed to have repentant works that match our repentance, but we can't have works that are yielding, trying to yield our righteousness or draw us closer to God. The sorry is not enough. Something comes after that. But let us not mistake the sacrifice that Jesus made was enough. It was the last necessary sacrifice. It was the last time anyone would ever have to kill an animal to pay for their sins. And that's only if you think of Jesus as an animal, which technically a human is. He was putting an end to sacrifices to pay for sins. But was he putting an end to righteous works that arise out of righteousness, which is what comes when you repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I hope there can be a resounding no. He was not putting an end to those works. Indeed, he said, I work. My father has worked since the beginning. We always work. People work. There are works to be done. Ephesians 2, works set aside for us to do. There are works that arise out of our righteousness, which is a gift from Jesus Christ. No amount of works would ever earn the righteousness. might even sort of look like righteousness, but it'll never earn the righteousness. But then there are works that arise out of the righteousness. Jesus was enough. Jesus did not die on the cross, tell people about his dying on the cross, and then stop right there and nobody ever heard from him again. He came back to life, taught the church beginning for 40 days, taught them everything that they needed to get the church really fired up and going, and then went to heaven to make intercession for us for the remainder of all time and eternity. Arising out of His righteousness were works. Jesus is still working. And we are supposed to still be working. But that being said, He's not working to make another sacrifice. He is not working to pay for sins again. His sacrifice was enough. 
It was the sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrifice was pointing to. All that spilled blood. Can you imagine having that job where you got to go and slice and drain the blood out of the calf and then go around and pour it and sprinkle it with a sprinkling device with that little thing, a dip and sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle everywhere in the temple. Make it all bloody before you can go and do your job. What a horrible job. It was pointing to have something that had to be done, a sacrifice that had to be made, a once-for-always sacrifice that would be sufficient enough. The animals would never be enough. But why was Jesus' sacrifice enough, but the sacrifice of the animals not enough? If the sacrifice of the animals was representing the sacrifice of Jesus, then it makes you think that it should have been enough. Well, the author of Hebrews explained it to us, didn't he? He said it wasn't enough, because, or he or she said it wasn't enough because it didn't affect the conscience of the person. We have had in our midst in Christianity for years this subversive teaching that has wiggled through to make you believe that you have to confess your sins to others in order to be forgiven. We are to live in the light, and it does say confess your sins to one another, but the forgiveness has already been paid for. It's done. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to affect not only the outward man and cleanse you from the impact that you've had and you go and you say, okay, I did this wrong and I'm sorry and God cleanses you, but on top of that to affect your inward man. If it wasn't enough to affect your inward man, then there would never be any progress whatsoever. You just go again later and make another sacrifice, which is what happens with the false teaching of confession. You go to confession, you make your confession, and then later you go and do it again and you go, well, it's okay, I'll go back and make that confession again and I'll be forgiven. And that is not the way it works. Jesus is always making intercession. First and foremost, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Secondly, the author of Hebrews is telling us that his sacrifice was adequate. It was adequate. We deal with this all the time, and we kind of confuse or interchange the words enough. Something is enough. So it's enough when you've measured it, you need a cup of flour, and you get to a cup of flour, that's enough. A cup and a half of flour is adequate. You see the difference? If you put a cup and a half of flour in when a cup of flour is called for, you're going to get something that's pretty dry. Might not even work the way you expected. Adequate means it was enough and possibly then some, right? It's not a, it's not a measurement. We're not saying it was enough to get the job done. So what the author of Hebrews tells us makes the sacrifice of Jesus adequate is throughout the text. First, in, in verse 14, which we read, we'll go back and look at it real quick again. In verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' sacrifice was adequate because he was without blemish. He was the perfect sacrifice that was always pointed to. His sacrifice was adequate. Next it says that his in 20, I'm sorry, in 15, which we just read part of 15, or began it, and for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, the Testament, the Old Testament, the covenant, the will, if you will, was waiting for somebody to die. Nobody dies. 
that sacrifice is not going to be adequate. But it can't just be anybody that dies back to 14. It has to be somebody that's holy without blemish. Who is that going to be exactly? Before you say there never could have been anybody else, I think Enoch might have been able to do it. He was without blemish, considered righteous in his day. But maybe he was only considered righteous because of his faith in God and God bestowed him with righteousness, whereas Jesus was righteous not only because of his faith in God, but because he literally never had any sin. So the point is, someone died that is adequate to bring into effect the will and testament, right? Then 26 and 28, he was adequate for the putting away of sin. Verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, in other words, when we move into this age where it's the final age, if you will, the church age before Jesus comes again, before it's all settled and done. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, made obvious, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We get wrapped up in the resurrection. The purpose of the resurrection is to prove to us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he died, hence enacting the testament, and he will come back to enforce it. Watched a number of shows over the years, various programs where somebody fakes their death. I've seen uh, Walker, Texas Ranger do it. I've seen the main character, a main character in Magnum P.I. do it. I've seen MacGyver do it. All these action shows where people fake their death, right? Why do they fake their death? They fake their death so they can go and do what they have to do and then come back and prove their innocence or prove what happened or solve the mystery or save the day. Jesus' death brought about the effect of the testament. Yes, it was the perfect sacrifice. Yes, but it also proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will come back and receive us into eternity. He has made for sure a sacrifice that not only brings about the New Testament, but on top of that ensures that we will get in. He will make certain that we will get in. And then back up in 24, his sacrifice is adequate. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. See, Jesus went into the actual heaven-bound tabernacle, not the one created by man, but he went into the actual heaven-bound tabernacle. Ain't no ox going to do that for you. No animal whatsoever is going to do that for you. But he who was God in the flesh was adequate to go into the heaven-bound temple and purify it in preparation for worship of the Holy God. Jesus' sacrifice was enough, meeting all the necessary rules and standards and everything. And then on top of that, it was adequate. It was enough and more in order to ensure because we are not ready yet to go into the heaven-bound sanctuary. But when a time comes that we do want to go in, Jesus will be there to usher us in. He will ensure it. His sacrifice was, is enough and adequate. Do you know what word is defined as enough and adequate by any chance? There's a single word. If you look up its definition and like dictionary.com, whatever, you'll find it defined as enough and adequate. The word is sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It was sufficient in all these ways it was enough. In all these ways it was adequate. It was sufficient. 
But hold on, because the writer of Hebrews is telling us something more. Something more than that it was sufficient. More than that it was enough. More than that it was adequate or the combination of enough and adequate. More than it was those things, Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all effective. Remember the ticket at the football game? The ticket was effective to tell me that I had permission to enter. It was effective to tell the person at the ticket gate that I had permission to enter. But the ticket would not get me in. It was effective to do that, but it would not get me in. Because when I received my ticket last year, if I went and bought my tickets in advance, when I walked up to the gate, I would say, look here, I bought my tickets and they would let me in. This year, I walk up to the gate and I, say, I show them my tickets and they say, you can go in. You gotta give me 10 bucks. Or 20 if we all forego, if we get, usually I get two tickets, but this time we had four. So 20 bucks, you give me 20 bucks, then you can go in. Jesus' sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews is explaining to us, was already effective. This is the problem. Some people get wrapped up in this because then if you dismiss, if Jesus' sacrifice was already effective and you dismiss some of the foundational truths that we study, what doctrine do you get? If Jesus' sacrifice was already effective that anyone might enter and you dismiss the foundational doctrine of faith, then what do you get? You get the doctrine of universalism that says that everyone's going to heaven regardless because Jesus' death was sufficient. Right? You get into universalism. Everyone's going in whether they believe in Jesus or not. But, that, but you can't dismiss the foundational teaching of the requirement of faith to open the channel between you and God through which get grace will flow. Yes, it's all on God. Believing is not a work. It is not repentance of dead works, including faith, right? Believing is not a work. It is a gift from God. In Ephesians, it even talks about how God gives the faith to the believer so the channel is open and the grace can be delivered. Jesus' death was past tense effective. Hmm... Well, if it was past tense effective, then what does that mean to us? Well, the writer of Hebrews ended in verse 18, the last thing that we read, said, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So nowhere on the earth, nothing that you could ever give, nothing that you could ever receive and then redistribute into the kingdom or that you could sacrifice, that you could kill, that you could spend. Nothing could be an offering for sin anymore. He gets real clear about it in verse 26, which we didn't read yet, we're going to now. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is nothing more that you can do. See, we have this mistaken idea that we go, we go sin, and then we go repent of our sin, and somehow that pays for our sin. But that's not how it works. When you repent of your sin, you're turning away from any away from anything that you've done wrong and doing what's right, following God, trusting in the Lord. That's what that is. It has nothing to do with paying now for your sins. Oh man, I sinned. Now I've got to go forward in the church and tell everybody what I did and they'll all forgive me. Listen to me. If you've ever sinned against me, that's already been forgiven. The one thing I learned as a very young Christian, as soon as somebody sins against me, I forgive them. The sacrifice of Jesus is enough. I don't need you to sacrifice. It wouldn't do any good anyway. It's not going to do anything. If I don't forgive, Jesus writes right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus speaks, I should say, and the disciples wrote it down as led by the Holy Spirit. If you can't forgive, you can't be forgiven. 
If somebody does something wrong to you and you can't forgive them for the wrong that they've done, then you can't be forgiven by God. That's not me. That's Jesus speaking. He's not even like Paul or somebody that you could figure was a little ways away and maybe got a little thing wrong. Jesus himself said, if you can't forgive, you can't be forgiven. And so automatically we forgive. Automatically there's, there's no penance for you to do. There's no paying a certain amount of money. Like indulgences they used to sell. Back then they used to sell indulgences. The Catholic Church got into that in Europe for a while. Like if you sin, you pay a certain amount of money, then the priest would forgive you and declare you forgiven. There's no indulgences. There's no penance. There is no sacrifice. You cannot undo. If I stand before you today, I will tell you right now that I know that I did things before I was a follower of Jesus Christ that I regret doing. I wish I had never done them. And I don't look at them and learn from them. And I don't look at them and wish I could do something to fix them. And I don't look at them and try to sacrifice my life now to make up for what I didn't do then. Because when I got saved, all old things passed away. And this is what I do now. We talked about this two weeks ago. But I let those things go and I push forward to follow my God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because now there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But here is what does remain. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If you will not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, kid yourself not, you're going to go to hell. doesn't matter if you pretend to do it for 10 years or 20 years, are you the best pretender or the best actor or the best hypocrite there is? If you have not truly trusted the Lord Jesus Christ with your eternal salvation, you will be separated from Him, which I'm just going to be plain with you is what you want anyway. If you've been playing at it for 10 years or 2 years or 2 months, pretending to be a Christian and you're not actually a Christian, you actually don't want to be with God anyway. You just want to be with God's people or get the benefit thereof or let people buy you things or give you praises or people think a certain way of you. You're getting some other kind of benefit at pretending to be a Christian and you just assume get that for your whole life and then you think you'll get that for eternity except eventually everything will be laid bare. It won't be like that anymore and you'll be away from God which is what you wanted anyway. He's going to let you go. There is no other way. We talked about that last week. But having come to Christ, having become a believer, there is now no way to pay for sins. So once you have become a believer, if you willfully sin, there is a question as to whether or not He's going to make intercession for you in heaven. Willfully, you choose to do what you know you should not do. There is a question as to whether you are actually following Jesus. I'm not saying that makes you unsaved if you were saved. But the result should be, as we talked about last week, a heart of contrition, a desire to go back and be with your Lord, a desire to be part of the kingdom, a desire to be part of His people, a desire to go to heaven with Him one day. And if you desire that and then try to earn it again, try to figure out a way to cover up your sin, try to figure out a way to do something so people will think that you have repented when in reality you have not, there is no way you can do that. None. So when you go to someone and you say, I am sorry for what I have done, you go to someone and you say, I am sorry for how I have hurt you, you don't understand, there is literally nothing under the sun that you can do to get that person to forgive you. You could give them all your money. You could give them your house and your car. You could go and wait on them hand and foot all day long, every day. And there is nothing you can do to get them to forgive you. They either will or they won't. They may eventually give in after they've served and they start to feel guilty that they're still holding it over your head and they say, I forgive you, even though they didn't. 
Because you did so many things to make them forgive you. It's the same way with God. If you have become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ by your profession, and rather than living for the Lord, you are off the way, you don't like this sermon. You can't abide by it because it's taking you deeper than you want to go. You're in the shallow water, barely able to swim, going, I can't imagine how you can stand there after all I know about Jesus and what He did for me, and after the Hebrews author writes that His sacrifice is complete and sufficient. It is enough. And it is adequate. And then you're going to tell me that if I sin willingly against God after I am saved, that I am, not, I am possibly not saved? Yes! Because your words are not good enough and your actions are not good enough. His are. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are tempted to willingly sin against Him, with all your might, fight against it. Because there is now no sacrifice to ever cover that up again. That doesn't mean that He's not going to make intercession for you. If you have sinned, if you willingly sin, and then, and then realize what you have done, and you accept His forgiveness, you have accept His intercession, it's still there. Maybe a year ago you willingly sinned against God, and you felt bad about that. And you went back to God. He said, God, I don't want to do that again. Help me be cleansed of that. He's faithful and just to do so. He promises He will. But if you today have an opportunity and you're going to willingly sin against God, you need to understand that literally the only way that's ever going to be cleansed is if Jesus makes intercession for you in heaven. Why would you do that? Why would you willingly sin against the one who died for you? It's like as if you were in the military and somebody dove on a grenade for you and saved you and your buddies and then the next day you wrote a, wrote a letter home to your wife or your girlfriend or whatever and told him how stupid he was and how mad you are at him and how he was a bad person and you hate him and as soon as you get home you're going to punch his wife in the face because he dove on a grenade for you. It's just like that. He said no one would ever do that. Jesus died for us the enough adequate sacrifice and people willingly sin against God's new covenant. And the author of Hebrews says it this way, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is no joke. This Christianity that we got for free, that you couldn't buy no matter what, is the most expensive thing to ever exist. You must guard it. You must protect it. You must stand up for it and speak out about it. You must live a certain way. It is not enough to go, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and that God raised Him from the dead and then to go off and willingly do what God would not have you do. That is just not enough. It is a Christianity which risks falling into the hands of a living God who is powerful, who can punish, who can chastise, and He will oppose you and try to turn you back to the way. While you are dull of hearing and do not hear Him or off the way and do not accept that He wants to take you deeper, take you further. Yes, I understand to some people this will sound like a works righteousness. To some people this will sound like I am saying that there are laws, there are rules. But we didn't get here without going through the teaching of saying there are not laws and rules that save you. We got here by a certain way, a foundation and a certain teaching. 
and an understanding that Jesus' sacrifice was forever enough and forever adequate. And it is forever effective. It was from that moment time the only. In fact, in fact, though it consummated the age and we began to understand it at the resurrection, understand that Jesus' sacrifice is how Moses got saved. It's how Enoch got saved. It's how Adam got saved. It's how David got saved. Jesus' sacrifice is effective once for always, going back to the beginning and forward to the end. But people refuse to do it God's way, and then they give a sacrifice thinking they're going to earn it back. And this is the last point of the sermon for today. There are four instead of three. Don't you love that? First of all, his sacrifice was enough. It was adequate and it was effective once for always going back before the beginning of time and on past the end of time. And there is no substitutionary sacrifice. And that is the last point. Jesus' sacrifice in truth was the only sacrifice. Uh, I get it. I understand. Yeah, they killed a lot of bulls if Jesus was the only sacrifice. Yeah, they, they, uh, they spattered around a lot of blood if we say that Jesus was the only sacrifice. But the truth is Jesus was the only sacrifice. All the rest of that stuff was commercials. Anybody here ever watch football? You ever watch a football game? Anybody here ever watch a commercial for the NFL? 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds long. They show a fancy play. They got a cool logo and some fancy tones. Anybody here want to watch that commercial for an hour and a half? Let's just watch the commercial. It's 30 seconds. Go on. We just put it on. What is that? An hour and a half? That's nine. It's 180 times. Let's just watch the commercial for the NFL football game 180 times in a row, back to back. Just that one commercial, 30 seconds, over and over and over and over. Anybody want to do that? I don't even want to watch it for 30 seconds. I'll just be plainly honest with you. I hate, I hate watching that commercial. I don't like that commercial. I don't want to watch it for 30 seconds, and I definitely don't want to watch it for an hour and a half. Anybody here want to watch an actual NFL football game sometime? Maybe with your favorite players, or maybe when there's something special going on in the game. Right? Not everybody watches football. I get that. But whatever it is, this is the real show. The bull slit throat, the spattering of bloods, that was the commercial. That was God saying there is a covenant, there is a testament, it is coming that's going to replace this one. It's better. It's way better. And it'll be good for you from the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the rest of your life and into and through eternity. It's way better. Jesus' death on the cross, it's not a commercial for how to get saved. It's the real thing. I had a professor in Bible college who used the word chirotic moment. He said there are these moments in life that, that impact us in such a way that we kind of never forget them. And he wasn't talking about moments outside salvation, not your salvation moment, but moments outside salvation. Something happens, you know, uh, when you get that phone call that tells you that somebody you loved is dead. I, I bet you if you've lost a close loved one and you got that when you first, you know how you first found out, whether by phone call or whatever, you remember it like it was yesterday because that moment it goes on you know it doesn't stop still there firmly embedded in your memory and every time somebody mentions anything about it it crops up again it's affecting who you are this this sacrifice of Jesus which was not a commercial for salvation was the only salvation sacrifice there would ever be it's the only one Everything before that was a commercial, and I'm here to say to you, every one of us is nothing but a commercial. When you serve God, when you love God, when you give, when you share the gospel and witness, He says that my power will come upon you, you'll be my witnesses. We're all commercials 
for the true sacrifice of Jesus, the once for always sacrifice of Jesus, which is the key to getting an intercessor in heaven and you can be saved. In Malachi, which we've been studying for a couple months now on Tuesday nights, they were giving blemished sacrifices. They were insulting God by giving the worst stuff. You know, the, the lamb with the broken leg, the spotted lamb instead of the pure white lamb, the, the frail dying of starvation lamb instead of the healthy one, and things like that. They're giving the weak, bad stuff to God. And then God gives a list of things that he had a problem with them doing. And one of those, he says, you cover my altar with tears. They were entreating God to love them, entreating God to protect them, entreating God to do things for them. And they would cover their, his altar with tears. And the result was, God was angry. There is only one sacrifice. It is the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And if you try to make another, God's going to get ticked off. He's angry. He opposes that. He has always opposed it. There is only one way to eternal life. That is Jesus Christ. And God has always opposed it. We don't have any problem with anybody that would choose another way. That's not our job. But God, on the other hand, is going to defend the only sacrifice. John, who was an apostle of Jesus and lived sometime after, probably the last apostle to die, wrote in the book of 1 John in chapter 2 the verses that I'm about to read to you, and this is my conclusion. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sin, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, we stand on two feet. The first foot is, don't sin against God. And the second foot is, but if you do, you have an intercessor, an advocate before God. This is what it says. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. See, he is not only our advocate with the Father, but he himself paid. That word there, propitiation, means like atonement. It means everything that was bad, that was the ramifications of what you did, it's all been taken care of. All your debts paid. All your pains healed. He is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the world. See, this is why we can love everybody. You can love the lost person. You can love the evil person. You can love your wicked neighbor. You can love the person that you don't even know. You know why? Because Jesus died for them just exactly the same as he did for you. You can love the person who sins against God and clearly does not deserve love. God loves them so much that he died for them. We can love those people, even people who oppose us, because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do you know that you know him? It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked.
it's, it's hard to swallow that no amount of righteous works would ever get you into the presence of God. That you could ever never do enough good to pay your own way. And the prideful, they don't like it. The rebels, they don't like it. I didn't like it. But the fact is, Jesus is enough. His sacrifice is enough. His sacrifice is adequate. His sacrifice is once for always effective. And because of that, there is literally only one sacrifice. I I know we have to do what's right out of our righteousness. We have to do what's right. And in doing what's right out of our righteousness, we are confirming in us that we know we belong to him. Jesus didn't stop working when he died. And if he died for all, then all died. I'm asking you today, as we go deeper in the teachings of the faith, as we transition, do not be afraid. But also don't dismiss the foundations either. Does anything that I've said today contradict anything that is present in the foundations? Say, well, what about faith? You're, You're saved only by faith. It doesn't even say that. It says you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and that God raised him from the dead. What is a Lord? A Lord is a person who tells you what to do and you do it. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you will follow his commands because he's your Lord. If you say you, what people want to do is they say, well, if I believe, then I just say I believe. I say I believe he is Lord and that's good enough. But no, it says if you confess him as Lord and a Lord is someone who tells you what to do and you do it. And Jesus says, those who love me follow my commands. And John writes what we just read. It is not about a works righteousness. It's not works that you have to do to be saved. But if you are saved and there are no works, if the works don't line up, or if you are saved and you continue in sin and you willingly do what God would have you to not do, then you have to ask, there's a contradiction. And it takes you back to the fundamentals. of the Repentance of dead word, works and faith. Baptism, which is baptism and washing. So your outside should be beginning to look more and more like Jesus every day. And your baptism is the old man passed away and a new man cometh. Right? Judgment. Eternal judgment. We can't make God out to be somebody who doesn't even care what we do. If God didn't care what you do, He wouldn't have died for you. If God didn't care where I go, he wouldn't have died for me. If God didn't care, none of us would even be here. The sacrifice of Jesus is enough. It's adequate. It's effective. Yes. And it's the only sacrifice that will work. So you don't get the now do works of righteousness to draw close to God. You accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. No one who trusts in the Lord will be put to shame. The problem is, when you take for yourself, it's because you stopped trusting. When you get people around you to do what you want by acting angry, by misusing words, or by paying them, you stopped trusting in the Lord. And if you're willing to stop trusting the Lord, then I've got to ask you, did you ever really begin trusting in the Lord? And if you didn't ever really begin trusting in the Lord, then I've got to ask you, will you today begin trusting in the Lord? 
and his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone as sufficient to pay for your sins and then out of your righteousness let's get busy let's get busy doing the things that he has set aside for us to do those who are not saved when you talk to them about sin they don't like it I had a man tell me you've called my lifestyle a sin and so I'm done with you you didn't talk to me for six months They'll unfriend you on social media. I know, they do it. All you have to do is disagree with them about what's sin and what's not. It's not your job to tell people what sin is. That's not your job. Everyone has sin, right? Your job is to tell people what the payment for sin is, what the propitiation is, about the enough, adequate, effective, once for always, only sacrifice of Jesus. We're going to sing a song of it. There you go. That's the next step in our transition series. I hope you've been blessed by worship and by the Word today. Uh, we'd love to have you partner with us in whatever way God might lead. And in any case, we want you to grow, to reach new heights in Jesus. God bless you today.